Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. <laughs> Good morning. We are back, but it's afternoon. Good afternoon. Could be evening when people are listening. <laughs> Hello. Could be two in the morning because people are at a birth. It could be. You were at a birth. I was at a birth. Yeah, Bliss is, uh, Bliss is uh, in blissful fatigue, right? Yeah, I get really weird when I'm tired. <laughs> I get right. very emotional. And so I have not slow. had a birth for a while. I have a couple of people coming up, but you were at a birth this morning. I was. She was a multip. Uh, she, it's her second home birth. She had her first home birth with a CNM in New York, had a good experience. She really enjoyed it. She found that when she got in the water the first time that her birth really slowed down. So she was hoping to have a water birth, but she didn't want to get in too soon. Um, and she had been texted. She texted me at like 10 o'clock last night and said, I just want to let you know, I'm having some, some cramping. And um, I haven't seen any show or anything like that. I'm like, okay, just keep me updated. And I got some texts throughout the night that she was having these cramps that she thought were contractions, but she wasn't sure. She hadn't had any bloody show. Her water hadn't broken. They were 10 minutes apart. Um, and she said, I, I think maybe I'm just having like stomach issues because I didn't eat well today. You know what I mean? It was one of those, like I've heard that before. Yeah. super ambiguous. And I was like, okay, well maybe you should take a shower and see if they keep progressing. And so every time she connected with me, basically they were 10 minutes apart. And so I just thought this could just peter out, you know? Sure. Of course. So the last text was like four in the four thirty in the morning, and I said, "Okay, let me know if they're coming closer. I'm happy to come whenever you need me." She said, "I don't know when to let you know," and I said, "Moms usually know when it's time, but it, it'll be different than last time, and your water might not break. You might not see any show, but if it starts to feel like it's getting stronger, I should come." So then her husband texts me at five o'clock and or calls at five o'clock and says, "I think we, we're ready for you to come," and I was like, "Great." I was out the door within 10 minutes. I texted him. I've heard this story before, I think. Texted him in the driveway and I said, um, I'm on my way. He called me. He said, things are moving really fast now. And I said, oh, God. I think you, I think you did the same story about <laughs> three, four podcasts ago. Oh, God, it was different. But and I And he said, she can feel the head. And I was like. Oh, crap. So I texted my assistant. I don't think I'm going to make it. She was behind me, but I told her to come because traffic. And uh, she said, okay. And then I hauled ass. I like missed a couple lights, you know, whatever. Pull in. I see the mother-in-law running by me. Bliss, hurry up. The head is out. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'll make it for the baby. I come in. Baby's in her arms. So I was like, okay, well, everybody's baby's crying, right? That's kind of birth. However, she looks straight at me and she said, the cord snapped. Oh, I thought she was going to say that. I think there's another baby in there. <laughs> that would be, she said the cord snapped and, and it took a second for me to be like, clamp, I got a clamp. So I had luckily brought my emergency bag. I put on a plastic clamp. Um, which without gloves in the water and all that is so slippery, but I got it on and, um, 
And then I was like, okay, I got to clamp the other side. So I clamped the other side and every the baby was crying. So I knew that the baby was- You don't necessarily okay. have to clamp the other side. I just, okay, good to know. But I've just, because of the last one I told you about that I had the problem with, um, the mom was had a hemorrhage before the placenta was out and I went to help the tr- cord traction and it snapped. Remember I told you that? Yeah. This is my second snapped cord. In, in recent memory. I mean, only second ever? Yeah, second oh, ever. No, I've, yeah, but I've, in, I've had quite a few. But within a few, like two verse. Well, you know, they got another one coming. Another snap? Because oh, right. I don't want to hear that. It's the rule of threes. But anyway, so that was interesting. And so I said, well. So how long was the baby like? They said I walked in right after. Okay. So the baby did not look pale. No, baby did not look pale. Baby was crying. Yeah. And I said, if you're ever in this situation again, take a shoelace or something, a dental floss and just tie it your, off. Or just take your fingers and hold yeah. onto it, right? Um, on the baby side. On the yeah. baby side. The mother side isn't that as important. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the days, in my old days in the hospital birthing, when once we cut the cord, which was usually right away <laughs> in the mm-hmm. old days, mm-hmm. we would just let the, the placenta drain into the bag, you know, into the catch bag at the so bottom. So tell me why that's not, like, tell me the mechanism of why that's It's baby's blood. It's not mom's blood. There's, there's nothing, yeah. No. So well, it's only as much as it's what's in the, the placenta, placenta, right? And it goes back. Which, of course, forth. is valuable to the baby. But in this case, when it snaps, what are you going to do? Nothing. You can't put it back. No. <laughs> quick, quick, so the, do some anastomosis of the, of the three Use vessels. Tape. <laughs> right. So, anyways, that was the interesting part of that birth. And um, yeah, I'm glad I walked in right after. So, you know, I, I sort of did this backwards. I actually did not pre- <laughs> preview the show before we went right into the birth. But for people that are, listening to us for the first time. We always do our birth stuff first if we have stories. But what we're going to do today, we have a topic today where we're going to talk about aspirin used for preeclampsia and possibly for other things, right? Yeah. The reason I, I wanted you to talk to me about this on, on the podcast is because I cannot believe how often it's getting recommended now. And I'm even seeing yep. it in midwifery groups. I mean, like it's becoming like every mom should have baby aspirin. So you know, I, I don't believe in anything being across the board like that. And I also, uh, you know, have some concerns because so it's a blood we're going to do that. We're going to yeah. do a couple of listener letters. We're going to do or reviews. Uh, we've got a couple of reviews today. Yeah. Okay, good, good ones. And we're going to talk, we're going to do a little COVID update. The only issue with our COVID updates is because of the way we record our podcasts in advance. It might be a COVID down date. <laughs> What's the opposite of an update? <laughs> I like it. Is there a, a down date? Yeah, a down date. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it might be it might be old news by then yeah. because the news is coming out fast now that a lot of the things that we were told are are being uh, being are wrong. <laughs> so we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. So um, that's exciting when that happens. Uh, but you're right. I mean, if people don't know what to do, I you know, it's really interesting. Will the cord stop pulsating? And, and, and collapse down, even if you didn't put a clamp on it? What happens in nature? What happens when a horse is born? All right. I mean, I've, it. well, I, it's probably not right I've, away. I've seen, I don't know that the cord snaps when a horse is born. So you're right. It may not happen, but it probably does happen in nature sometimes. Yeah. So Especially is like it, an is, elephant. I don't know that. If, I don't. Yeah. When they fall down like that, I don't know that it's something that is, we, we freak out because we think the baby's going to exsanguinate, but I, I don't know in real life whether that is true or not. Mm-hmm. It probably is because it can happen in utero. And we've had, unfortunately, very sad events where cords have 
evulsed in utero and the baby has sort of like evulsed as snapped. Snapped, yeah. It's, in it's utero. Snapped, or it doesn't necessarily mean snap. Snap gives the impression that it just went and that's a, I wonder if that, how does that translate on, on, on a podcast? I don't know. Versus, versus uh, you know, tears a little bit, or there's a little bit of a, a break in one of the, I guess it would be one of the veins, which is coming, uh, or excuse me, the, the baby's artery, which is coming from the baby where the baby's pumping blood away from itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or it could be in the, one of the veins, probably one of the veins is more likely to tear simply because they're weaker. Uh, but in nature, uh, I've seen I've seen horses be born. I guess they're called foals. <laughs> they're not they're not horses when they're born, but where they're walking around after they get up and they're sort of dragging their placenta on the ground and so just hanging from them and eventually it falls off, right? Or the mother chews it off or something. They pull it off or it falls off because of gravity. But I think everybody should know that if the baby does, if you ever have a baby and it's born in in the backseat of a car or in your home when no one is there, the, just just make sure that you clamp the cord. And if you don't have a clamp, you can use your fingers, you can use a shoelace, a piece of string, yeah, tie it uh, a rubber band, it's whatever you want to do. Just holding it. Correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's why you've heard shoelaces before. That's where that comes and from. And boiling some water. <laughs> People always say, what are you going to do with the water? <laughs> We're going to warm up the tub. Nothing. It keeps the dad busy. That's, <laughs> that's what you do. Honey, go boil some water. No. Okay. Because it keeps it from worrying if you're busy doing something. Mm-hmm. If you have a task, then you don't worry. That's so true. Okay. I have a nice letter here from Lennon Clark from Oregon, and I have to read it, even though it's sort of embarrassing sometimes to read letters that are praising. I know. But one of the traits that I admire most is gratitude, and yes. it's nice to read gratitude letters because sometimes you we don't say thank you enough. My ex used to say gratitude is sexy. Oh. That always stays in my brain now. Gratitude is sexy, you guys. Well, here's some gratitude then. All right. Okay. <laughs> even a juicy uh, around here. The subject says thank you. Yay. So even the subject was thank you. Yay. I'm an Oregon home birth midwife and regular listener to your podcast. I just felt so moved today to send you this note and thank you for all that you do and for all that you don't do. Because what we don't do is just as important, if not more important, than what we actually do. Right? Totally. Okay. So true. It makes me so happy to know there are doctors out there like you and midwives like you. <laughs> thank you for supporting women for supporting women's autonomy and for being humble enough to always be willing to learn more we need oh thank you Bliss. we need more <laughs> doctors in our world like you also i loved in your recent podcast when you said the career advice that you gave your children was to do what they love but don't do anything that needs to be licensed by the state <laughs> i'm a cpm but i choose to remain unlicensed in my state which is oregon as i feel like the license ties my hands and removes choice from mothers. Thankfully, in Oregon, we have the legal ability to be unlicensed. My state terms me a traditional midwife, and I'm unable to advertise. But I find that's a small price to pay to be able to authentically serve women and babies. So would I. So interesting. She's she yeah. That's so interesting that she can't advertise. But yeah, interesting. I mean, I mean, does that mean she can't post something in Facebook, or does that what does that mean she can't advertise? Guess, you and I don't advertise. I guess in this day and age, it's harder to know, right? Yeah, I guess you, a Google a Google thing would be an ad. A billboard? <laughs> a billboard. <laughs> right. So no billboards for uh, traditional midwives in Oregon. Okay. I did take your Reteach the Breach training when you were in Albany, Oregon a few years ago, and I loved it. I can't even put to words how much I appreciate you and your work. Three thank yous. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Gratitude is sex. All right. So that is just <laughs> makes my day. And uh, we, with that, we can end the podcast. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for listening. Because I'm tired. So that's fine. <laughs> no, we're going to keep going. <laughs> no. No. No, we right. got some interesting things to talk about. Yeah. I got, I got another, just a silly little thing here that I want to talk about real quickly. This is an article that came across my stupid news feed at night when I get Google alerts on mm. home birthing. And this one, the headline is what I want to talk about because the headline says this performance of a lifetime opera singer gives birth in the backseat of a car on the highway. Right. So they give something a clever title and then they go on to talk about sort of how exciting this was and how unique and glorifying it was. And they go, they, they sort of celebrate the fact that she had this thing and they make a big deal about it and stuff like that. However, why in the, our world where if she had planned a home birth, yeah. All right. Is it not as then, then it would have been vilified, mm-hmm. not necessarily vilified in this in this particular rag piece of you know fish wrap paper, but <laughs> but um, but home birth is is not celebrated. It's mm-hmm. sort of but if it happens by accident, then it's the performance of a lifetime. <laughs> you know, I'm just putting it out there. I'm not expecting anybody to answer. I'm just hoping that there's people at home going, nodding their heads up and down saying, yeah, why is that? Why is that? You know, um, one of my clients sent me um, this uh, interview that Ellen did with the woman who delivered her 33-week baby on the plane unexpectedly. You heard about that, right? Yeah, just recently there was, oh no, oh no, there was something on the recently on the news feed too that yeah. the doctor and three, there were a couple yeah. of nurses. There were three NICU nurses and a doctor. This woman didn't know she was pregnant. She thought she was having stomach cramps. She went into the bathroom. This is the part I don't understand from a midwife and doctor perspective. She passes out, she said, and woke up with a baby. (laughs) I was like, how does that happen? How do you pass out and then you have a baby? Well, it was scary because wouldn't the baby be fall? Wouldn't the baby fall into? (laughs) God, think about it. It's a suction thing too. What if you hit? God. That's terrible. No, it's a, what a terrible. That's what happened. That's the story. Yeah, that's what I, I heard her talking to Ellen about it. Anyways, that was very interesting, and and she got very emotional when Ellen brought the doctors and the nurses. Like you know, they were all on together. Uh, reunion show. Right? Yeah. yeah, right. It was like Zoom or Skype or something, but uh, it was very very interesting story. Did I ever tell you my airplane story? Have I told the airplane story on the podcast? Before? Probably a long time ago. Okay. I was flying back from Europe with my wife and my kids. Three of the four kids, I think, were with us. Or maybe they were all with us. No, I guess they were all with us. Maybe, no, maybe we didn't take the twins. Maybe it was just Max and Maddie. And we were, Maddie was little. I mean, really little, like a baby. Like two, mm-hmm. something like that. And we're flying back and we're sitting in our, our seats. And um, we had just, we had taken off about an hour from London. And we were flying all the way to LA. And then you hear over the loudspeaker... <laughs> Uh, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, is there a physician on the plane or is there a doctor in the house or whatever they mm-hmm. say on the airplane? And mm-hmm. it's, I look at Sandy and Sandy looks at me and it's like, oh God. <laughs> All right. So I get up and it turns out that there's a 14 or 15 year old boy who is having febrile seizure mm-hmm. and they don't have anything on the plane. They don't have IVs. They don't have even like blood pressure. They don't have, they really didn't have hardly anything. But I had recognized it because, I, again, I, I used to be really smart with medical stuff. And I recognized what was going on. And I felt him, and he was really hot. So the, the 
the uh, flight attendant said, what can we do? I said, let's get some ice. Let's get some ice and put some ice on him. And we brought his temperature down and he was having these things with contractures of his hands. And, you know, he was sort of out of it. He was like not seizing, but he was yeah. just completely out of it. And we brought his temperature down and he came around. Yeah. Awesome. And the pilot comes down or comes out and asks me, do we need to, do we need to land? And I looked at him, I go, well, where would we land? <laughs> he said, well, we'd probably have to land in Reykjavik in Iceland. And mm-hmm. I said, no, I think he's okay. Mm-hmm. I think he's okay. And I think I sat with him for about half an hour. He seemed to be okay. He was talking and fine. And you just, it's one of those things where when young people get high fevers, they can sometimes sort of seize up. It's not really a seizure as much as it's just their muscles just contract up. And as a reward for that, the, the this was pre 9-11. The pilot asked me and, and Max who was probably at that point, maybe eight years old or something like that, if we wanted to come up to the cockpit. Uh, those were the days. Yeah. So we got to go into the cockpit as we flew over Greenland. That's pretty cool. And it was daytime. So we could see, you know, we could see the glaciers. We could see, it was so beautiful. Wow. Right. Very cool. And they gave us a bottle of champagne, nice. but they didn't move us up to business class. <laughs> they kept us in coach the whole way home. So uh, anyway, that was... Uh, my brief airplane story, but it's, it's kind of nice. But again, they're celebrating the fact that this woman didn't know she was pregnant. Yeah. Okay? I mean, we, we look at each other and we go. That's hard. It's hard to figure how do you, out. Yeah. How do you know? How does someone not know if they're pregnant? I mean, I know it happens. It happened to me. Uh, not Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there. Okay. No, I've had clients who didn't know they were pregnant before. When I was a resident, I've never had that happen. Obviously, people don't go to an obstetrician if they're not pregnant. Right. <laughs> Okay, enough Moving of that. On. Well, you know, I got a letter from, um, sort of, I'm going to use this as my dumb doctor dogma segment. Okay. This is a letter from Don Thompson. Don Thompson is sort of the head honcho at improvingbirth.org, which is an organization worthy of support. And if you should go to their website, uh, www.improvingbirth.org, and check it out. And this is a letter that she's published several times, and she just wrote this recently. She said, I shared this story below two years ago, and it became one of my most seen and commented posts ever. The number of people who commented that this is, quote, exactly what happened to me, unquote, is not surprising. And I reshared it this week. And again, the comments from parents and birth professionals are the same. She starts out saying, kind, compassionate bullshit. Let me explain further and give an example. A first-time mother is 36 weeks pregnant and goes to her regular appointment. The nurse informs her that the doctor wants to do an ultrasound right? Mm-hmm. We could break this down as we go along. So she's 36 weeks. The doctor wants to do an ultrasound. All right. I would tell women who are 36 weeks who have nothing wrong with them. Unless you really want to see your baby, don't have them do an ultrasound. Because if you do an unnecessary ultrasound, a certain percentage of the time, they're going to find something that's going to plant seeds of anxiety and doubt in you and going to cause the, the doctor to have anxiety, which he'll project, he'll, he'll project on you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the nurse informs her that the doctor wants to do an ultrasound. She didn't expect it, but she's excited about the opportunity to catch a glimpse of her baby. Mm -hmm. During the ultrasound, the doctor says, wow, this baby is getting big. Mm -hmm. We might have to induce you at 39 weeks to avoid injury to the baby. She's surprised and feels a little unsure because she has heard negative things about induction, but she trusts that her doctor knows what's best. 37 and 38 week appointments go the same. Baby is measuring big. At the 39 week appointment, I don't know if they're measuring big by ultrasound or are they using the tape measure? Probably by ultrasound. Yeah. 
So by the way, that's another thing, doing an ultrasound a week from a previous ultrasound when the error of a scan at term has an error of plus or minus about two and a half to three weeks, makes no sense at all. The interval growth is you can't chart interval growth in a one week interval when the error of the scan is more than two or three weeks. Makes sense. Yeah. And, so, we, and we've talked about it on previous podcasts before we started the new podcast that there's, there's a statistic that you talked about that when you do ultrasounds, in the third trimester for no reason yeah just you know standard ultrasounds right in the third trimester that the the interventions go way up. yeah there's there's something this number is stuck in my head and i don't know if it's the right number i might be mixing up my statistics but mm-hmm. something like 22 percent greater chance you're going to end up with a cesarean section right. so there you go all right at the 39 week appointment the doctor walks in with a chipper attitude and asks if she wants to if Ask if she wants to meet her baby today. Or ask the woman if she wants to meet her baby today. (laughs) How about today? She explains that the baby is big and that she doesn't want to risk injury to the baby because her pelvis is on the smaller side. Now, for for me, when I read that paragraph, I had to do a double take because the whole time I'm reading the first three paragraphs, I'm thinking this is obviously a male doctor because I have the stereotype of the paternalistic male doctor coming and telling us. But she says, she explains that the baby is big. How many of us listening thought that it had to be a male doctor before I said that? Not me, but it's possible. Well, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. Still trusting, she returns home to gather her things and arrives at the hospital two hours later. None of the risks have been explained. She is told that they will start with something to ripen her cervix for 12 hours and then begin Pitocin the following day. They are excited and can't really sleep, especially with their nurse coming in every couple hours. The next morning, her cervix is checked and she's two to three centimeters dilated. They begin to administer the Pitocin, which initially doesn't seem to be doing much. But after the couple of hours, the the nurse increasing the dose every 15 minutes, she begins to feel contractions. She has an IV line leading to one machine, two more lines connecting to her belly. She wasn't prepared for that. They hadn't mentioned that for an induction, she must be monitored continuously. She had anticipated being able to move around more freely. She adjusts this in her mind. Before long, the contractions are coming consistently, but soon they're one on top of the other, causing the nurse to come in and reduce the dose. The contractions slow a bit, but they are still very strong and requiring her full attention and strength to get through them. Now they have slowed too much for the nurse's liking, so she comes in and increases the dose. This scenario happens several times before a good pattern is finally achieved. After several hours of working extremely hard, the nurse performs a cervical exam only to tell her that there has been little to no change. She is devastated. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She continues because really, what other choice does she have now? The Pitocin drip is increased. She has now been in the hospital for a full 24 hours. She's only seen her doctor briefly at the beginning. She's becoming tired and hungry, and she hasn't had anything to eat because, again, they hadn't mentioned that they don't allow eating during induction. Mm-hmm. Or that they can take three days. Or they can take three days. Mm-hmm. After another 12 hours and a couple of shift changes, including her doctor, She is finally five centimeters. The nurse keeps coming in and looking at the monitor. They are concerned about the baby. Mm -hmm. They explain that they need a better reading on the baby and that they would like to put a monitor on the baby's head. This requires them to break her water. She now has an additional wire that is strapped to her leg. And in the baby's scalp. If, oh, I've been there. Oh, yeah, or, I've been there as a doula. I'm everybody kidding. listening has probably heard this story too. Yeah. If, you've, if you're in the birth world, you know this story. Yeah. Uh, so you know what's going to happen next. Okay. Soon she gets an epidural because she can't deal with the intensity of the Pitocin driving contractions. Her blood pressure drops and the baby's heart rate drops along with it. 
alarm and concern, an oxygen mask is put on mom. After a short time, everything settles down, but mom and dad are pretty shaken up because yeah. everybody runs in the room. Yeah, changes positions. Right, that, yeah. and they're told that this, they, that this is not related to the epidural. <laughs> Constantly told that. Yeah. And of course it is. Yeah. The nurse is really great. She is so kind whenever she comes in. Another doctor from the same practice comes in finally, and she too is compassionate and kind with her words, especially when she begins to explain that the baby must be stuck in that small pelvis of hers. She explains that the baby is not tolerating labor very well, and they think it's time for a change of plans. The doctor is thoughtful and expresses sympathy in knowing this isn't what she wanted, but sometimes we just have to do what's right and safest for the baby. 20 minutes later, an eight pound, eight, uh, eight pound, six ounce baby is born via surgical birth. The mother comments that the baby doesn't seem that big. <laughs> this family was never told that the risk of C-section with induction is 50% more likely than if their baby was at increased risk of, and their, or that their baby was at increased risk of fetal distress, excuse me. They also weren't told that, quote, big baby, unquote, is not a medical indication for induction, or that it would take nearly 3,700 unnecessary C-sections to prevent one baby from having a permanent nerve injury due to shoulder dystocia. Mm -hmm. And the source for that is evidence-based birth. Uh, the doctor and nurses were kind and compassionate at every step. They were never abusive or dismissive. They were even empathetic, but ultimately feeding her bullshit. This specific person went home knowing clearly that something wasn't right. She was angry at herself for not knowing better and trusting her doctor. But too many go home thinking that their provider saved them and their baby, that their body is broken, never considering that the unnecessary interventions were the problem. Those of us who know better need to stand up and be loud and clear that this practice standard is not okay. Induction has its place and can be a valuable tool when medically necessary and indicated. Yeah. I should share that this mama went on to have three more babies, all bigger than the first, vaginally. I believe that this, and then she adds, and uh, Dawn Thompson adds, I believe that the first way out of this mess is to share these stories with as many people as possible, which is why I'm reading it on the podcast, because I know that we have a fairly wide reach across countries. So share it. Pregnant families are the key to change. Please consider visiting her Facebook page at, uh, what was, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> God, I do this all the time, improvingbirth.org. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, my brain. Okay. So you did it. That's yeah, great. the cascade of interventions is a thing. Uh, we see it all too often. Um, the indications are flimsy, like the lowish fluid or biggish baby or smallish baby or, or uh, oldish placenta. Mm -hmm. All these things, these are not diagnosis. ACOG actually comes out and says that, that an estimated fetal weight is not a reason to necessarily do something because of the errors inherent in estimating fetal weight. Yeah. And there's a really good, um, there's a really good breakdown of all that information on evidence-based birth. If, uh, if you needed evidence to go talk to your doctor or as a doula to talk to your clients about exactly this potential scenario, um, it's laid out really well. So thank you for reading that. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, you know, you can't see me on a podcast, but I'm shaking my head, uh, in agreement to all of that. I could have you could have started the sentence and I could have, have finished, finished it. the sentence. <laughs> right. Yes. Cause I've seen it just way too many times. And it's, it's very frustrating for those of us who are birth workers like doulas to just watch the whole, you know, we know what's going to happen. And, and like, like she said, they were all kind and nice people. And it just seems like. But they did have yeah. their anxieties and their fears. Yeah. And they, and they sort of did project them onto that, that family. 
Um, or control. Yeah. Or it's a way of control. And this is and this is the standard of care yeah. in, in the profession. Yeah. Which is why we need to chuck the whole thing and revise it with midwives being the primary caregivers for pregnant women in this country. Because it's a podcast, I get to say bad words, right? Well, I said bullshit a couple yeah. of times. So is that a bad word? No. I don't know, maybe. No. Well, you can't say shit. Yeah. On, on, on so regular terrestrial radio. You fuckery is the word. Is it? Fuckery, um, which I like. Uh, That's where you meddle? Is that fuckery? Fuckery is just like, it's just, it's just all fucked up. And um, the woman, bad, uh, bad mother birther, bad ass mother birther. Yeah. Um, she was talking about the system being broken and used that word. And I was like, I am going to use that word. I like it. Maybe it'll be the title of the podcast. <laughs> no, I don't think we can do that. You could do the little, you know, the little yeah, asterisk. I could, yes. Yeah. Blood Right. Okay. I wish you guys could have seen Steve's face for that one. Oh man. <laughs> anyway, we're gonna talk now. No, we're not. Oh no, we're not. No. Never mind. I have, I'm one tired. More, I have one more thing before we talk about aspirin. Okay. I have to do the COVID update. Oh, COVID update. Right. So you know, we've only been, we've we got lots of time yet. So all right. So the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons is an organization that I belong to. I think they are supportive of private practice. This has nothing to do with OBGYN specifically, um, but they support the private practitioner, which most physicians are. They're not like the AMA, which supports corporate and academic medicine at the expense of the private practitioner and the expense of the individual patient or what we call client. So the AAPS is, is sort of a, a watchdog for these things. And they've- AAPS. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, for uh, people, you don't have to be a member to, to go to their website and read some of the stuff that they post. Anyway, they, their latest uh, newsletter came out uh, just this past week, and uh, the first thing was titled Getting to Zero, and I've used my highlighter to summarize the highlights. Which is most of it. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's not. <laughs> no, just no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> cool. A world with zero viruses is possible only if there is zero life. Yeah. Every living creature coexists with and is surrounded by a microbiome. But if we want to reduce the morbidity and mortality of COVID-19 to nearly zero, we should consider the experience of physicians who treat it. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. As opposed to people who go on television who, who just are epidemiologists or government people or whatever who's saying that- Or technology people? Yeah, they're not, they're not, or yeah, or even media people. The richest person? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Bill Gates, you mean? Mm -hmm. You can say his name. Um, it's not a four-letter word. It's five-letter word. Okay. I say fuck, but not Bill Gates. Okay, go ahead. All right. Um, there's a woman named Dr. Jackie Stone tells of her experience in Zimbabwe, where a devastating outbreak was brought under control primarily with ivermectin. I don't know ivermectin. Ivermectin is a antiparasitic drug, and okay. it's sort of like hydroxychloroquine. It's another one of those drugs that, that in countries like in Africa, where people take their Sunday Sunday medicine, which is, I think, hydroxychloroquine, and they take it prophylactically every week for malaria... There's far, far fewer cases and far, far people getting sick, seriously sick from it, even in countries where there's malnourishment and uh, other poor medical And it's very facilities. right? It's extremely inexpensive, yeah. which is why it was vilified. Exactly. It's the only reason there's why no it was money. vilified, because it, no why wouldn't you try something in a pandemic, especially at the beginning, where you didn't have anything? Right. You didn't have 
remdesivir, you didn't have monoclonal antibody treatment, you didn't know that steroids might be helping for people um, who are just about ready to be intubated to prevent that sort of thing. You didn't know that. So why not try these things? But they were vilified completely. And we've been through that on the podcast. I'm not going to go on that. But everyone in Zimbabwe has now ivermectin at home. Mm-hmm. And he or she knows the correct protocol for prophylaxis and treatment. Informal communication via WhatsApp usually ensures that important information is rapidly disseminated throughout the country. Great. Interesting how everybody there probably has a phone and they have WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Okay. People who want to follow the WHO guidelines can do so. But if we follow them, we are going back to the, to the 70 deaths a day, said Dr. Stone, when they were having a lot of deaths per day in Zimbabwe. And now it's almost controlled. I honestly believe that doctors have become more scared of the regulators and the lawyers than they are of losing a patient. And I know that that's true here because I know a lot of my people that I've spoken to, whether they be my clients, friends, whatever, have said that they don't know any physician that will write for hydroxychloroquine. Mm. Or they've asked their physician, they asked their physician to take it prophylactically or something, and their physician wouldn't do it for them. Because yes. what are they? What are they? What they're are afraid. They're afraid the regulators will come down on them. Huh. Pharmacists have told patients, despite what a doctor writes a prescription, and the pharmacist tells the patient, you know, this isn't approved for COVID, and it's, it may not. It may not be something. Why? What the pharmacist's job is to tell them that this medicine is relatively safe or not safe, or don't take it with this medicine, or take it at this time of day. That's sort of what pharmacists do to tell a patient to countermand what their doctor has written. I don't think that's in the in the uh, the pharmacy code of ethics. Mm. Not sure. Mm. Um, all right, so they go on in another paragraph. They talk: Are we being monitored? Uh, an American got a prescription for ivermectin from a telehealth practitioner to keep just in case, and had it filled at Walgreens after a CVS pharmacist told them it was toxic <laughs> when used for COVID. So it's not toxic if you use it for arthritis or lupus, but it's toxic if you, or for parasites, but it's toxic if you use for COVID. Why would a pharmacist say that? I don't know, but it reminds me of what you said recently about um, masks being a mandate a law. And you're like, it's not a law. Like we throw these words around, you yeah. know, toxic. Okay. Yeah. Well, it turned up in his medical records at the Mayo Clinic and was noted that the fact that he got a prescription from a online physician, probably from America's frontline doctors, got a prescription for this, got it filled at Walgreens, and somehow it got reported to his medical records at the Mayo Clinic um, and, his, uh, and was noted by the nurse at his annual visit, although he had not informed the pharmacist that he was a patient there. He asked the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons whether a HIPAA violation had occurred. Americans think that HIPAA protects privacy. It really facilitates disclosure. Our goal should be getting to zero violations of the U.S. Constitution, not zero viruses, okay? And the official's oath to uphold it and restoring medical ethics with the protection of the patient-physician relationship, patient confidentiality, confidentiality, autonomy, and respect for objective truth. Boom. Boom. Does that sound like something I would say? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to read one more thing. Uh, as of April 16th, 2021, the VAERS system had received 86,080 adverse events following COVID-19 vaccinations, including 6,282 hospitalizations and 3,186 deaths. Nonetheless, the mainstream narrative is that these products are so safe and effective that it would be unethical to deny them to participants in the placebo group. 
Pfizer sent a letter to its trial participants one week after its vaccine was authorized on December 10th under emergency use authorization, telling the placebo group that uh, that those that in, were in that arm, that they could receive the vaccine as it became available. To get full approval, the FDA requires two years of follow-up data. So the data are now likely to be scanty and less reliable given that the trials are effectively being unblinded. In other words, you're, they're, they're contacting the placebo group who's didn't know they got placebo. Mm-hmm. And they're telling them that, well, you got placebo, so you should go get the vaccine, which essentially undermines the entire study. That's true. Yeah, yeah it's this is the stuff that people don't know and the, and the media isn't going to carry. And you sent me a video. I know. I was going to talk about it from Rachel Walensky, the head of the CDC. You yeah. saw that. And she was like, there's there's no reason for us to believe that there that there's any um, issues. With it, yeah, it's a one and a half minute <laughs> and video. You, and, what, and you just said that, that there's all these reports yeah. of layers. She does say one thing that I agree with. She says that the, ultimately the decision for a pregnant woman to get the vaccine should be hers based on you know consultation with her obstetrician, which of yeah. course, if they consult with the ethicists uh, in my profession, the only logical outcome you can have when you consult with your physician is to get the vaccine. Yeah. So I mean, I, I'm smirking when I say that. People right. can't see my face, but yeah, if, yeah, there should be a link someplace, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about aspirin. Baby aspirin. Baby, well, aspirin and the baby aspirin dose, mm-hmm. right? In, yeah. So what, do you, what is it that you, are being asked about what is it that you're seeing out there you mentioned it briefly at the intro but um i've heard it from my clients that if they had a previous provider um that they were it was being recommended to them if they were 39 i believe is one of the things 39 years old 39 years old not 35 mm. that's an odd number yeah 39 weeks, 39 years old. I'm tired. I think, I think, I think you mean if they're over 35, I think it's probably over 35. Right. Um, if, um, for everybody though, to prevent preeclampsia and now it's being talked about in the midwifery groups as being a potential for preventing preeclampsia. And we're talking about giving it to everybody, which is just like, just seems so odd to me because it's a blood thinner. So why would you do something that is preventative that has a risk to it? Well, the, the question is, what are the risks versus benefits of it? And, and that there's always risk and there's always benefit to everything we do. There's risk to taking aspirin. There's probably risk to not taking aspirin. So let's go through and find out what the evidence up to this point says. And I did some literature review. As I tell, always tell the listeners, I do these, I read through these things so that you don't have to. And I'm I'm interested in hearing the research, but I also one of the one of the tenets of this podcast is common sense. Yes. And I have been practicing for a while now and I have had zero people develop full-blown preeclampsia with attention and uh, liver support and all of those things. So why would I want to give every single woman in my practice maybe aspirin? So that's where I'm coming from about it. So I'm glad you're going to talk about it. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about it. Um, United States, the low dose aspirin comes in an 81 milligram form, baby aspirin. It's 81 milligrams, sort of an odd number. All right. And as we go through the data, you'll see that the most of the studies were done with women either taking 100 milligrams or 150 milligrams. So the 81 milligrams has really never been studied, but the American College OBGYN recommends the 81 milligrams for the prevention of preeclampsia. 
um, in pe people that have risk factors. And we'll go through those in just a second. However, as you said, it's been used that people are recommending for all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. And the abstract, which I'll get into the details later, but the abstract says, in the absence of high-risk factors for preeclampsia, current evidence does not support the use of prophylactic low-dose aspirin for the prevention of early pregnancy loss, fetal growth restriction, stillbirth, or preterm birth. Yeah. But yet, you'll see people that are on it because they had a couple of miscarriages mm -hmm. or they had um, an IUGR baby last time or whatever. And the evidence doesn't support that. And let's go through that, okay? And... Um... Uh, blood clots, right? Well, if you have true blood clots, you're going to probably be on um, low, low molecular weight heparin anyway. So, okay. we'll but we'll get to that. Okay. So, the American College of, of OBGYN and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine make the following recommendations. Okay. Low dose aspirin, 81 milligrams per day prophylaxis, is recommended in women at high risk for preeclampsia and should be initiated between 12 weeks and 28 weeks gestation, ideally before 16 weeks and continue daily until delivery. So you don't have to stop it at like 39 weeks because you're worried about it affecting clotting or platelet function. Okay, next one. Um, Low-dose aspirin prophylaxis should be considered for women with more than one um, of several moderate risk factors for preeclampsia. And we'll go through those. Low-dose aspirin prophylaxis is not recommended solely for the indication of prior unexplained stillbirth in the absence of risk factors for preeclampsia. Low-dose aspirin prophylaxis is not recommended for prevention of fetal growth restriction in the absence of risk factors for preeclampsia. Low-dose aspirin prophylaxis is not recommended for the prevention of spontaneous preterm birth in the absence of risk factors for preeclampsia. <laughs> Low-dose aspirin prophylaxis is not recommended uh, for the prevention of early pregnancy loss. Pretty clear, pretty yeah. straightforward. So the only indication that they are finding where there's evidence to support it for low dose aspirin is people who have was risk it, factors. Was it more than more than one? Yeah, more than one. So at least two risk factors for for recurrent preeclampsia. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. No, I just I this first one that you talked about of not discontinuing it. Yeah. Um, for a home birth does not make me feel comfortable. I think sometimes those recommendations are made because they have things available or they give standard. Um, Pitocin, they have blood transfusions available. They have a, you know. Yeah, but it shouldn't really, that low dose aspirin should not affect the ability of blood to clot reasonably well. And remember that, you know this, I don't have to tell you this, that obviously uterine bleeding doesn't stop from clotting, it stops from the uterus contracting. Right. 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 Okay. But I get it. And so you could look at it, if you could make a, make a, statement with your, your clients. And again, as you see, you may not have many risk, but many clients who have two or more risk factors. Well, let's, yeah, let's see what they have. Okay. So, well, first of all, I wanted to know to myself, I wrote, what's the mechanism? How does it work? Well, aspirin is a cyclooxygenase inhibitor with anti-inflammatory and antiplatelet properties. All right. So what does that mean? It's been used during uh, pregnancy, most commonly to prevent or delay the onset of preeclampsia. But again, I'm not sure of the mechanism from that, but, but I did uh, read further and I think I got it into there's someplace, but let's, we may come to that. We may not come to that. It's really not important. People, most people listening don't really care. So clinical risk assessment for preeclampsia. So what are some high risk factors? Okay. Yeah. History of preeclampsia, especially when accompanied by an adverse outcome in a previous pregnancy. Twins or triplets or multifetal gestation. Mm -hmm. Chronic hypertension. Mm -hmm. Type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Renal disease. Yeah. Or an autoimmune disease such as lupus or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Right. Okay. 
And the recommendation there is for low dose aspirin to the patient has one or more of these high risk factors. So if it has a high risk factor, one or more. For moderate risk factors. An adverse outcome is a loss. What do they mean by? Uh, oh, seizure. No, it could be a seizure. It could have been a uh, help syndrome. Right. Okay. Um, moderate, a moderate risk factor. Okay. Well, anybody who's pregnant. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> One is nulliparity. So mm-hmm. that that's like half the population. All right. So you got it, but you're supposed to have at least two of these. Okay. More than one. So if you're nullip, you only got one, you only got one more strike. If you're mm-hmm. multip, you got at least two strikes. Obesity with a BMI greater than 30 body mass index, mm-hmm. a family history of preeclampsia in a mother or a sister. So in a first degree relative. So when you take your history on intake, you know, I always ask about how's your mother self, but I, I don't often ask if your mother had problems giving birth to you. To, to I the, do. Do you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to start doing that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, socio-demographic characteristics, so African-American or low socioeconomic status, because they just have a higher incidence of probably of, of hypertension and things like that and anyway. Mm-hmm. Age 35 or older. So if you're 35 and over and a primip, you you meet the criteria for going on aspirin, which is what you're seeing. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is the recommendation. Now, again... <laughs> Um, and what is the statistic? Do you know of how many women get preeclampsia? Do you know that? Um, just like no, because population? because no, I don't know quite okay. off the top of my head because our population is so generally so different. Yeah. Right. I think in certain parts of the country it's probably higher. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really common when I was a resident in a county, and we had ninety-five percent of our clients were uh, Latinas. Mm-hmm. So it was higher in them. They're mostly a lot of more overweight. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my personal history factors of low previous low birth weight or small for gestational age, previous adverse pregnancy outcome. I don't know what that means because I, I, they just said it doesn't apply to like stillbirth or something like that. But I guess if that's you combine that with being in, uh, well, you can't have a pre you can't be nulliparous and have a previous pregnancy outcome. Right. So, uh, and more than 10 year pregnancy interval. Hmm, that's interesting. Which I think would make most women over 10, between, not all, but most women over 10 years would be covered by the over age 35 thing too. So here's the pathophysiology. So here's a little bit how it works. Aspirin is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug that works primarily through its inhibition of two cycle oxygenase isoenzymes. So I did do, I did actually highlight the weeds here, <laughs> which are necessary for prostaglandin biosynthesis. So it prevents the process of prostaglandin synthesis. And we know that prostaglandins tend to increase vasospasm and potentially increase the risk for uh, preeclampsia or hypertension. Okay. So prostacyclin is a potent vasodilator and an inhibitor of platelet aggregation, whereas thromboxin A is a potent vasoconstrictor and promotes platelet aggregation. This this COX-1 that it inhibits, okay, regulates the production of these two things, prostacyclin and thromboxane A. Again, this is getting weedy. So if people want to know more about this, they can look it up themselves. At lower dosages, 60 to 150 milligrams per day, aspirin irreversibly acetylates COX-1, resulting in decreased platelet synthesis of thromboxin A2 without affecting vascular wall production of prostacyclin. So it it blocks the bad one and gives you the good one, okay? Okay. At higher doses, aspirin inhibits both. 
So which is why it's, it's baby aspirin, low-dose aspirin. Okay. Whether low-dose aspirin improves early placental perfusion is unknown. The precise mechanism by which low-dose aspirin prevents preeclampsia in some women is also uncertain. Yeah. Okay. So that, um, what causes preeclampsia is pretty still a gray area. And I think that they're just kind of throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah, I think that they think Which that some of it has to do with vascular abnormalities and vasospasm. And so they're thinking, and maybe uh, microclots. And so they're thinking the baby aspirin was a theoretical thing to try. And it was, you know, weighing harm and benefit. And they found that there was very little harm in taking it. And, and they did find some benefit from it, which is why it's sort of gotten this widespread use and why you're seeing a lot of physicians tell all women to be on it because they don't feel like there's anything wrong with it. Kind of like getting a flu shot. Right. All women should get a flu shot because we think that there's no negative to it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, or all women should get vitamin K or all women should get hepatitis vaccine or all blah, 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 blah. But one of the biggest preventatives for preeclampsia from a midwifery perspective is good nutrition, good nutrition, specifically protein. So if that was something that was taught and if doctors were actually talking to pregnant women about what they should be eating, not just what they shouldn't be eating, like sushi and those things. um, Which, which is wrong, by the way, you can eat sushi when you're pregnant. It's true. You can eat sushi when you're pregnant, but that's, um, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. Okay. Right. So, yeah, that's a, I like that topic though. We can talk about myths. silly myths. 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 That would be a good topic. Mm-hmm. All right. So, maternal risk. The majority of systemic reviews of randomized controlled trials have found no increase in hemorrhagic complications, if it answers your question, mm-hmm. associated with low dose aspirin therapy. No increased risk of placental abruption, no increased postpartum hemorrhage, and no increase in mean blood loss. Okay. So, that's pretty good. Yeah. I think that's good stuff. Um, Oh, no increased risk of congenital anomalies. Okay. No increased risk of adverse fetal or neonatal effects associated with low-dose aspirin exposure. There still is concern has been raised about a possible association between aspirin use during pregnancy and gastroschisis. Okay. Which gastroschisis? Is failure of the abdominal wall to fuse properly in the midline. Oh, And yeah, so yeah, you yeah. have intestines yeah. sticking out. Yes, but of course. That's why they tell you that you shouldn't be taking it in the first trimester. You should start it sometime between 12 and 16 weeks. Because, even, because by then it's formed. Even though they said no no risk of congenital anomalies, which most of those happen in the first. In the first right, right. Yeah. Except there was there has been a, a couple of studies, I guess three studies that mentioned that. So mm-hmm. there might be a risk of that, but obviously it's a very very small risk if it's a risk at all. So they're saying be you know to be cautious. Don't start it until you're out of the first trimester. But it's important to start it before your 16 weeks because it works best. Not to start at some at someone at 27 weeks or something like that, but to start it at 16 weeks if you get them at 16 weeks or before that. In this meta-analysis, the dose of aspirin was not indicated. Uh, however, the recommendation is worldwide is 100 milligrams to 150 milligrams. But since we don't have a dose in the United States that you can do that with, there are some people that are giving one at one baby aspirin on one day and two the next day and one the day after and two the day after. All right, to alternate it. There probably is no downside to probably giving two baby aspirin, which is 162 milligrams, but there's data supporting that. It's, it's above the 150, which has been used in other countries. All right. The use of low-dose aspirin, 60 to 150 milligrams in the third trimester has not been associated with ductal closure. So uh, there are people who, we, you know, you, if you give uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication, there can be premature closure of the ductus. There's been no increase in perinatal deaths from persistent pulmonary hypertension 
in the neonate, in the neonate on, uh, when using low-dose aspirin. Okay. Mm -hmm. The most recent, most recent Cochrane meta-analysis did not find an increased risk of neonatal intracranial hemorrhage with baby aspirin. Good. So again, they're not finding any, the whole point of this is they're not finding any real negatives. Mm -hmm. Okay. So low, what is low-dose aspirin contraindicated? And it's contraindicated in patients with a known hypersensitivity to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So people who can't take Advil or Motrin or ibuprofen should probably not be taking aspirin. Okay. If you, anybody hears that knocking, that's that's uh, refrigerator. Uh, here, Bliss's refrigerator. Because <laughs> again, we're in the kitchen. All right. The same is true in patients with asthma who have a history of aspirin-induced acute bronchospasm. So people with asthma who are inflamed or flared after they've taken aspirin in the past, obviously should not be taking aspirin. Relative contraindications to low-dose aspirin include a history of gastrointestinal bleeding, active, active peptic ulcer disease, or severe hepatic dysfunction, which we really aren't going to see that much. We won't. Right. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Timing of use during pregnancy. Uh, there were significant reductions in severe preeclampsia and fetal growth restriction uh, were demonstrated when low-dose aspirin was started before 16 weeks. So yes, I'm just reiterating that. And again, only fetal growth restriction in people that have concurrent signs of preeclampsia or risk factors for preeclampsia. Giving it for fetal growth restriction in the absence of preeclampsia, that, as we said earlier, there's no indication for that. So basically between 12 and 16 weeks is what, what you're You'd like to try to get people started yeah. on it then. Mm-hmm. Authors reported a reduction in preterm preeclampsia only in a subgroup of patients in which aspirin was initiated before 16 weeks at a daily, at a daily dose of 100 milligrams. Okay, again, this is, these are just different studies. Um, there is no apparent benefit to stopping low-dose aspirin before delivery. To answer your mm-hmm. concern. Mm-hmm. Um, study protocols specific to pregnancy have varied with some discontinuing low-dose aspirin at 36 weeks of gestation and others continuing low-dose aspirin until delivery. They're saying you don't have to stop it, but I think they're also saying that if you choose to stop it, you're probably okay as well. So that if that makes you or other practitioners more confident, Mm -hmm. that's what you should do. Uh, Low-dose aspirin use in the absence of other anticoagulants is not a contraindication to getting an epidural. All right, but I can guarantee you there will be some anesthesiologists who will be reluctant to do it, and they don't care what the paper says, which is another reason maybe to stop it at 35 or 36 weeks, so that when you go into labor, if you're going to the hospital and you want an epidural, you can, and they ask you, are you taking any medication? You can say no. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Indications for low-dose aspirin during pregnancy prevention. Okay, we've talked about this a little bit, but 150 milligram aspirin or placebo, the authors found a significant decrease in the rate of preterm preeclampsia in the ones taking aspirin versus the placebo. There are no available studies comparing the 60, 80 milligram versus 150 milligrams. So we don't know if you're gonna get a better result with 81 milligrams versus 150 milligrams. But in this country, everybody seems to be using one baby aspirin, which is 81 milligrams. Um, So they're shooting from the hip because there isn't science for that. Again, they're, they're implying that that if it gets in your system and it and it gets into your bloodstream, it's going to affect platelets, whether there's 81 milligrams circulating or there's 150 milligrams. Therefore, a higher dose or doubling of the available 81 milligram dose cannot be recommended at this time. Um, a subsequent Cochrane review said there were 59 trials reported a 17% reduction in preeclampsia with low-dose aspirin. That's not a high rate, but it's something. Mm-hmm. The largest trials in the analysis showed no significant protective effects. So Interestingly enough, in those 59 trials, there were some big trials that didn't show that aspirin did anything. But overall, 
if you if you do a meta analysis, it shows that there is some benefit. All right. The idea that we're taking studies that show maybe a 17% benefit versus no benefit, and now we're going to give aspirin to everybody. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. Again, we don't know. It is a, a medication. It's an artificial thing that you're putting in your body. And you know how when I feel about that. Nature. Right. Low-dose aspirin prophylaxis, 81 milligrams per day after 12 weeks of gestation, modestly reduces the risk of preeclampsia in women at increased risk without resulting in adverse fetal effects. I mean, I sound like the head of the CDC. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> increased maternal bleeding or placenta, I guess, but this has been studied, whereas the other thing she's talking about has not. There's no data yet. Maybe right. It's too soon. So, so what do you do in your practice? When do you use it? I haven't used baby aspirin uh, in anybody. Um, and usually by the time I meet people, I don't usually meet people at eight or 10 weeks in my practice. Usually they're either on it or they're not on it. If they're on it, I just keep them on it. They were put on it for whatever reason by their physician. I don't, you know, if it ain't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't, but I, I haven't, would I put people who had a history of a say severe preeclampsia and had to have a induction at 29 weeks because they had it with them? Yeah. I would probably recommend that they go on baby aspirin. Sure. Sure. Um, and, and eat a lot of protein. <laughs> Did you guys hear her whispering? You can't whisper on a podcast, please. It just doesn't work. Say it again. You guys heard me. I would just recommend that people um, eat, eat a lot protein. of protein. Yeah. And I would keep really good, you know, if someone had uh, a, an experience in the past where they had preeclampsia, I would really work hard with them on preventative measures and we would pay really close attention. And if we started to see things that were popping up, then, um, then we could, you know, obviously this wouldn't be what we could do, but like I said, knock on wood, um, I've had a couple of people with hypertension that had to go on medication, but I have not had anybody have to be transferred out of care for preeclampsia at this point. Um, so I feel like I have not, it's not, I've had a few, it's not foolproof. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like there's always going to be somebody that you're not going to be able to make a difference with, but, um, I think it makes I've, a difference I've, what you do. I've, I, I've turned people around. I've yes. seen their labs turn around. I know you yeah. have, and I, yeah. I, I'm very impressed. And you get to start early with them. A lot of my clients, I, I don't meet till after 20 weeks, but you don't usually see preeclampsia until later. in the No, I've seen, I've seen some people with preeclampsia later in pregnancy. And I've had to transfer some people out of care because they, they're, they're not, at the point where I can do some sort of induction at home or, or they're, you know, they're developing evidence of help syndrome or something where I'm not comfortable, even if I, they need to be delivered, but they need to be delivered a place that can deal with it. I mean, we had somebody I told, I talked about on the podcast, I think who had, or maybe we haven't, There's a, there was a twin yes. birth where an hour after birth, the woman had a seizure. Right? Yeah. We right. haven't, we haven't talked about it. Right. Um, in low risk groups, the number needed to treat is approximately 500 compared to the number needed to treat a 50 women in a high risk group. So, Giving aspirin indiscriminately, you're going to have to give 500 women a baby aspirin in order to prevent one case of preeclampsia. But if you're in a high-risk group, it's only you treat 50 women to prevent one case. So you make those decisions. That's what a practitioner does. They make those decisions. In women at high risk of preeclampsia, it should be initiated again between 12 weeks and 28 weeks, optimally before 16 weeks. We've said that already. Okay. So here's where there's insufficient evidence. And these are important. We went through this before. I'm just going to summarize for where they... Aspirin, which is often given by practitioners because there was a data or a statement at some point that said that maybe you should try this for that. 
Um, this has looked at the bulk of data in both the Cochrane analysis, meta-analysis, and come up with these things for stillbirth. Low-dose aspirin is not recommended for women with a history of stillbirth in the absence of risk factors for preeclampsia, as we read earlier. Yeah. Fetal growth restriction. Uh, there are currently no well-powered randomized control studies, trials, evaluating the role of low-dose aspirin in the prevention of recurrent fetal growth restriction in otherwise low-risk women. Preterm birth. Low-dose aspirin prophylaxis for prevention of spontaneous preterm birth in the absence of risk factors for preeclampsia is not recommended. Right. Uh, indications which there is no benefit for, for low-dose aspirin includes early pregnancy loss, uh, low-dose aspirin, unfractionated or low-molecular heparin, the combination, excuse me, of low-dose aspirin and unfractionated low-molecular mo low heparin has been shown, <laughs> my brain sees the words faster than my mouth can read them, mm -hmm. has been shown to reduce the risk of early pregnancy loss in women with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. However, low-dose aspirin has not been shown to prevent unexplained early pregnancy loss in women who do not have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. So in women that have like two or three miscarriage. I mean, the definition of habitual miscarriage is three in a row, but a lot of times you're not going to wait till someone has three. You know, if they've had one, that's pretty normal. That's about, um, it's normal. yeah, it's about one in three, one in four women will have a miscarriage with their first pregnancy. That's statistically normal. Yeah. To have two in a row would be one in three times one in three or one in nine. That isn't really that unusual either. But when you have three in a row, then you're getting one in 27. You're starting to be in the lower fourth four percentile or lower. Yeah. So based on the available evidence, the use of low-dose prophylaxis aspirin is not recommended for the prevention of early pregnancy loss unless they have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Okay? Yeah. So that's that. And then I have a, a quick, um, an article regarding this, um, talking about low-dose aspirin. And the problem we have in the United States is that we only have the 81 milligram dose. And so the authors of it, uh, this was in the Gray Journal, which is the journal that sometimes criticized for publishing Nackenbaum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nackenbaum uh, <laughs> <laughs> publishing their articles, but sometimes they have good articles too. And so the authors respond to the idea that you only have 81 milligrams in the United States saying, meta-analysis concluded that the highest benefit for preterm preeclampsia prevention was obtained in the subgroup of women who received greater than or equal to 100 milligrams of aspirin before 16 weeks. However, the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics, FIGO, which is an, another well-known organization, guideline recommends that women at increased risk of preeclampsia should start at 150 milligrams of aspirin between 11 and 14 weeks. FIGO proposes an aspirin regi uh, regime for, for preterm preeclampsia prevention according to available preparations per country and suggests that two tablets of 81 milligrams a day is acceptable. So some people are giving 81, FIGO says you can give 162, somewhere in that range. I don't know if they can be broken in half. If you can, you can cut one in half and take one and a half, then you're probably doing great. That's about 120 milligrams. That would be great every day. Mm -hmm. You could also take one and then two and then one and then two and then one and then two. For your 17% possibility of lowering your preeclampsia. Yeah. In people that have high risk factors, yeah. Which we determined was pretty much everyone. Uh, oh, everyone, yeah, everyone with everyone has moderate risk yeah. factors, right? Right. right. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's that. So you can see how I'm, I feel about it still. But I, I am glad well, did I answer Did I answer some of the... Why people are doing it? Yeah, yeah. why you're seeing yeah. it everywhere. Yeah. And a lot of it is, mis, is misinformation. A lot of it is being used inappropriately. It's because that's what we were told years ago 
And like I've said, in many of the things that my colleagues do, uh, and I'm guilty, but I'm open to the, I'm open to changing is that when, once you're taught a way of doing something, it becomes a habit. And if it's worked for you all these years, you say, well, I've never really had a problem with aspirin. I haven't seen a, a downside of taking it. So I'm going to continue to give it to people who have miscarriages. Yeah. Unrelated to preeclampsia. Right. factors. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Got it. Okay. Well, thank so you I, for doing that. You're welcome. Yeah. Appreciate Still it. Kinda, I mean, it's, I, I, I can't think of anything better to do than spend my time reading journal articles. <laughs> Simplifying them for well, us, it, right? It, yeah, yeah. It, it is Stanley Cup season. So uh, I do, I do have other things to do. Soon. Yeah. And I need to have a nap I need to get to, but I wanted to name, I wanted to read See, can you tell? Can you tell that I'm tired, you guys? Um, I did want to read a couple of reviews. We've got two great reviews. Um, one was um, done just last Wednesday. Abriana Kennedy, thank you for. Uh, I'm so glad I have your name here. Um, and the, her title of it is "Rational and Inspiring." I'm not involved in the birth world presently. Maybe someday, she says. I currently work as a nurse, dissatisfied with my current with the current model of hospital care. Bliss and Dr. Stu are captivating. Wow. I like that word, captivating. That's a new one. one. Love it. We're so glad that we captivate you. Um, Their wisdom transcends past the birth world and into every aspect of patient care. It must- It does. I have to- He agrees. I have to agree. I'm captivating. Because not only in patient care, this goes into life itself. Yeah. How you should view life. Yes, common sense is life. You know, you've got to live. You can't stay ignorant. I mean, there's so many people who just don't know anything who act like experts. I mean, it could be your sister-in-law. <laughs> it could be somebody on TV. It could be anyone. They don't know anything. Mm-hmm. They only know, they're yourself. only repeating what they've been told. They have no, and I don't think that you have to necessarily be like, you don't have to be a epidemiologist to, to make comments about uh, coronavirus. You don't have to be a, a pilot to make comments about airplanes, but you have to have some basic knowledge and you can't just be repeating it because that's what your brother-in-law said, you know, at the barbecue last week where <laughs> everybody was sitting six feet apart with masks on. <laughs> so um, a must listen if you are a medical professional. This podcast gives a fresh perspective on the limits of current medical, on the limits of current medical models. Looking forward to Wednesday mornings, an hour of clarity in a world of insanity. I love this person. Ariana Kennedy. But I will tell you that it's unlikely that I'm going to get a lot of medical doctors who practice obstetrics. There may be doctors who do other things or are like-minded who will listen, but this is, this is too uncomfortable it's for my medical, too my medical colleagues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like too unsettling. Yeah. Yeah, you've tried for many years. I keep trying. You know what? If I I think that every day I reach out, I reach some people somewhere in the world who may share this or may pass it on or may change the way they think or may think twice about the the doctrine that they've been living by. And if I can do that, and there's all and there's people all all throughout the world doing the same thing in different formats, um, we will we will. We have to change it because where we're headed right now, I mean, we've been headed this down this road for a really long time mm-hmm. where, you know, we're going to reach a dead end and we're not doing well by the women that we're supposed to be serving. 
in my profession. Yeah. Well, in my profession, in our profession. Yeah. And the families we're, we're supposed to be serving. We're not doing well by, by the statistics that we have. And we could do better. Uh, it just takes, you know, it takes we need to rethinking. Yeah, we need, it's, we need to do better. Yeah, it's the future of the world depends on it. Yeah, agreed. Right, it's captivating. <laughs> One more, and then oh. we're going to wrap up for okay. the day. All right. Um, best birth-related, and then it says dot, dot, dot. So I assume it's podcast. I think this is Mountain Granny. I think that's her name, right? Isn't that what that looks like? Yeah. It's an acronym or something. Um, it says, I have to say, this is my all-time favorite podcast. I love it. Dr. Stu and Bliss discuss essential issues surrounding birth with their brains turned on. I love that they can have conflicting perspectives on a particular topic, but still maintain their friendship and respect each other. And we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, most of all, I admire Dr. Stu's courage in bucking the system and providing birth options for mothers in his area and for being willing to boldly speak truth, even when it's unpopular. Thank you for all you do. Thank you, Mountain Granny. Mountain right. Granny. Um, <laughs> Um, so please, this is how other people find the podcast and we can make that impact that we're hoping to make. So please go on to, um, to Apple and write a review. And as Stu was saying in the beginning with that letter that he read, um, this is important information. So if you think that somebody would enjoy to hear this particular episode, please share it. Until next time, it's been, it's been a pleasure having you listen and we'll be back. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 